0: There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Well, look down yonder, Gabriel, put your feet on the land and see. But, Gabriel, don't you blow your trumpet till you hear from me. There ain't no grave can hold my body down. Ain't no grave can hold my body down.
1: This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to one of the finest recordings in Johnny Cash's life. So many of them occurred near the end of his life with Rick Rubin. And we're going to be talking about Johnny Cash's life here, because on this day in history, in 2003, Johnny Cash, he died. And as always, our This Day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. When you tell a story... You always have to start at the beginning. Johnny Cash was born in Kingsland, Arkansas, the son of poor Southern Baptist sharecroppers. Cash was one of seven children born to Ray and Carrie Rivers Cash. They moved with his family at the age of three to Dicey's, Arkansas, so that his father could take advantage of the New Deal farming programs instituted by President Roosevelt. There, the Cash clan lived in a five-room house and farmed 20 acres of cotton and other Seasonal crops. We went into the vault to dig out some clips. And here's Johnny talking about his childhood in Arkansas in those cotton fields, about the house that he was born in.
0: February 26, 1932, in a little house surrounded by cotton fields. My father was a cotton farmer walked behind the mules with the plow, and I did that as well. It was a family thing. Everybody in the family worked in the fields, even the girls did. There's some sweet memories and some sad memories too, but, but it was a good life.
1: But it was a good life. It was a hard life. But the hardest thing that happened, uh, Johnny, was losing his older brother and a star older brother, one he really looked up to. Here's Johnny's son, John Carter Cash, talking about his dad and his dad's brother.
2: If it hadn't been for losing Jack, there's no telling if he ever would have gone on to sing the songs that he sang with such heartache, you know, um, related to so many people, you know, his, his suffering so easily because it was on his sleeve. He had a great understanding and closer spiritual relationship with God because he came in and studied in Jack's stead and though he continued to sing and followed his heart's desire um, in music he still delved even deeper into studying the Bible my father did in life because I believe that he had that desire to be who he believed Jack would have been
1: and he believed Jack would have been a pastor and a man of the cloth. Here's John Carter Cash, again Johnny's son, talking about his dad's love of gospel music. This is the first music he ever fell in love with. You're also going to hear in this clip from Marshall Grant from the Tennessee 2, who was in the room that fateful day, Cash auditioned in Memphis for Sam Phillips.
2: My father's greatest desire when he got into the music business, he wanted to sing gospel songs on the radio. And I think, you know, I think it was only later on that he realized that, that you know, he, he might be actually making records in the studio and that they'd be recorded. He just wanted to sing on the radio.
0: When we went to audition for Sam Phillips, it was still gospel music that we wanted to do. And we auditioned for Sam Phillips at Sun Records with a song called, I Was There When It Happened. So I guess I to know
3: Well, I was there when it happened And so I guess I ought to know
1: And if you remember in that scene from Walk the Line, Joaquin Phoenix walks into that studio. He sings that song. Sam Phillips is just shaking his head. He doesn't buy what Johnny's selling. And, well, here's the exchange in that movie.
4: We come down here, we play for a minute, and he tells me I don't believe in God. You know exactly what I'm telling you. We've already heard... That song, a hundred times, just like that, just like how you sang it. Oh, he didn't let us bring it home. Bring, bring it home? All right, let's bring it home. If he was hit by a truck and you were lying out in that gutter dying and you had time to sing one song, huh? one song people would remember before your dirt, one song that would let God... Know what you felt about your time here on earth. One song that would sum you up, you telling me that's the song you'd sing. That same Jimmy Davis tune we hear on the radio all day. About your peace within and how it's real and how you're going to shout it. Or would you sing something different?
1: And my goodness, he started to sing something different. What's left out of Walk the Line, and we'll get into in subsequent segments in this hour, is that he did keep on singing gospel. But ultimately, this, not soon thereafter, not long after this exchange, was Johnny Cash's first number one song. And the number one billboard hit for him on the country charts. And here it is.
3: I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine, I walk the line Mm -hmm. I find it very, very easy to be true I find myself alone when each day's through Yes, I'll admit that I'm a fool for you Because you're mine I walk the line And those lyrics aren't
1: exactly shake, rattle, and roll, folks. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line It's a song about marital fidelity At the era in which rock and roll was unleashing sexual passions and stirring sexual passion, Johnny Cash was not any old rock and roller. And by the way, his struggles with sin, he'd write about them honestly, always as a Christian. And that's what was so beautiful about Cash. When we come back, celebrating in a way honoring the life of Johnny Cash, who died on this day in history in 2003
3: you got a way to keep me on your side You give me cause for love that I can't hide For you I know I'd even try to turn the tide Because you're mine, I walk the line
0: And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder One of the four beasts saying come and see, and I saw, and behold, a white horse.
1: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, the life of Johnny
0: Cash, being celebrated on this day in history. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden letter reaching down when the man comes around. And that man, of course, to
1: Johnny Cash was, well, we know who that man is. And Walk the Line did not get into this. And it was a great movie. But it stripped the animating force of Cash's life. And that was God. And that was Jesus Christ. And Johnny wrote about his sin. We learned that about Scalia, his sin. We, you know, Christians have to talk about their sin or they're not, they're not being honest. And this, if anything, Johnny Cash was. And I think that's the appeal. And this movie just focused on his love of June, but not on his love of Christ. And let me tell you, Johnny did. He recorded the entire King James Version of the New Testament. Did you know that? He performed countless Billy Graham revivals, made a movie about the life of Jesus, and studied the Bible so much, he almost had a, well, I think he knew more about it than most Divinity School PhDs. Somehow none of that made it to the screen. Let's take a listen to Johnny's reading of Matthew 7.
0: Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall.
1: None of it in the movie Walk the Line. Leaving out Cash's Christian faith, from his life story would be like leaving out half-naked women from you Hefners, or like telling the story of Jackie Robinson without ever mentioning race or segregation. You know, Cash was interviewed quite a number of times about his drug addiction. He spoke openly about his bouts with it and his selfishness. In one interview with Songwriter magazine, he said this, you don't think about anyone else When you're on drugs, you think about yourself and where your next stash is coming from or your next drink. I wanted and wasted so much. I mean, we're not talking days I wasted. We're talking years, maybe decades. What a confession. Believers and non-believers alike know about such struggles. That's what attracted so many people to Cash's music, his humility, his empathy. Here's a story that should have been in the the movie. It's out of his book, out of the book, and I think if you can read one book about Johnny Cash, it's called A Man Called Cash by Steve Turner. The book was supposed to be based on this, the the movie was supposed to be based on this book, but my goodness, all the good stuff's not in the movie. Turns out Cash in the 1990s wanted to kill himself. And so he decided to go to Chattanooga, not far from his home, to a place called the Nickajack Caves where he spent a lot of time And he had spent time there early in his life hunting for treasures such as Indian arrowheads and items left behind by Confederate soldiers. But on this occasion, again, he was looking to end his life. This is what he told writer Nick Toshis in 1995. And again, what a scene this would have made in the movie. Cash saying, I just felt like I was at the end of the line. I was down there by myself and I got to feeling that I took so many pills that I'd done it. That I was going to blow up or something. I hadn't eaten in days, I hadn't slept in days, and my mind wasn't working too good anyway. I couldn't stand myself anymore. I wanted to get away from me. And if that meant dying, then okay. I took a flashlight with me into those caves and I said to myself, I'm gonna walk and crawl and climb into that cave until the light goes out and then I'm just gonna lie down. And so I crawled in there with that flashlight until it burned out and I laid down to die. I was a mile in that cave, at least a mile. And by the way, this cave is filled with over 100,000 bats. But I felt this great comforting presence come over me. And it was saying, No, you're not dying. I got things for you to do. And so I got up, found my way out. Cliffs, ledges, drop-offs. I don't know how I got out. Except... God got me out. Not in the movie. How does that happen? How does that happen? Oh, I think we know how that happens. His love for June is all over that movie, but not his love for Christ. And he loved June because of her almost perfect love for Christ. He said it over and over again. Here's another story that wasn't in the movie. This may be my favorite. In August of 1969, hundreds of thousands of young Americans gathered in Woodstock, to catch this concert that at the time no one knew would be Woodstock. I mean, it turned out to be one of the great concerts of all time. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Creedence, Clearwater, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, you name them, they were there. Sly and the Family Stone, it was everybody. Chris Christopherson had wanted his buddy Johnny Cash to go. Johnny had a show at this time on CBS. And he generally loved to introduce all kinds of new musical acts. We'll get into that in the next segment. His first time ever. His two musical guests were two kids named Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. So he loved musicians and he loved celebrating them. But on this particular night, and by the way, that was ABC, not CBS, but on this particular night, he decided to close out his show with one of his favorite gospel songs. And let's take a listen.
0: Were you there when they crucified my Lord? My Lord
5: Sometimes it causes
6: me to tremble
1: Perhaps his most famous recordings were ones he made in prisons, especially his two shows at Folsom Prison. Cash seemed at home there. He didn't see himself as better than those men. He was just one of the guys. He understood the prisoners in ways they realized without him ever saying anything. It didn't hurt that he'd written some of his best songs from the point of view of condemned and convicted men. Again, a sinner. He related. The inmates loved him for that. Actually, America loved him for that.
0: When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy. Don't ever play with guns, but I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. When I hear that whistle blowing, I hang my head.
1: Bono once said of Cash, he doesn't sing for the damned, he sings with the damned. And that was the true mark of Cash's Christian faith. The empathy he had for men and women often overlooked in our society. When Cash got serious about his faith and left the women and alcohol behind, some of his old friends were not very happy with him. Quote, they'd rather I be in prison than church, Cash admitted. Waylon Jennings was especially tough on Cash, according to Turner, accusing him of selling out to religion. He'd be attacked by agnostics and atheists if he appeared too pious, explained Stephen Turner, his biographer, and he would be denounced by the religious community if he appeared too worldly. Talk about a tough line Cash had to walk. And that's the thing about Johnny Cash. He dared to smash musical categories. He even transcended them. And that's, I think, because he shared himself with the world, the better parts and the worst parts, and especially the worst parts. He wasn't afraid to write about his sin. We've talked about it before, and it's what drew us close to him, his honesty, his authenticity. Johnny Cash, who died on this day in history in 2003, his story continues here on Our American
0: Story. Well, I won't back down No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground, won't be turned. the time my daddy left to fight the big war saw my first pistol in the general store in the general store when i was 13 thought it was the finest thing i ever had seen i asked if i could have one when i grew up mama dropped a dozen eggs and she really blew up she really blew up and i didn't understand mama said the pistol is the devil's right hand she really blew
1: And that's Johnny Cash covering the great Steve Earle song. He loved the younger writers. The younger writers loved him. In fact, perhaps Bob Dylan's best record, Nashville Skyline, my favorite. Uh, He does a recording of North Country Girl, his song, with one of his heroes, Johnny Cash. And here's what it sounded like.
0: And that was Johnny,
1: about as good as he sounded. There was a period of time in the 70s and 80s when he sounded like a Johnny Cash cover artist. I saw him at the Lone Star Cafe twice. Once it was very sad, and I didn't get it. And I walked out, and he was on something, and knew it sounded terrible. And then I saw him again in a more acoustic setting, and I'd never seen anything like it. And we're going to get to that in just a bit. We wanted to talk about Johnny's talent as a storyteller. Because, boy, was he a storyteller. And I don't think he does it better than in this song that we all know. And let's hear a bit of it.
0: I want you to, to, if you don't mind, Carl, I'd like you to stay out and help us on some songs. Play the guitar. One of the greatest guitar players as well as songwriters and singers in the business. Appreciate a little help on the guitar. All right?
6: Love it. Thank you, Carl. (laughs)
0: Well, my daddy left home when I was three And he didn't leave much to Ma and me Just this old guitar and an empty bottle of booze Now, I don't blame him cause he run and hid But the meanest thing that he ever did Was before he left, he went and named me Sue Well, he must have thought that it was quite a joke And it got a lot of laughs from a lot of folks it Seems I had to fight my whole life through He was big and bent and gray and old. And I looked at him and my blood ran cold. And I said, my name is Sue.
5: How do you do? Now you going to die.
1: And it just goes on. In fact, stopping this song is really hard to do. But what a story. What a storyteller. In 1999, a bunch of artists got together in a star tribute to Johnny. And Bruce Springsteen who had actually inspired Johnny, and Johnny covered several of Bruce's songs, Highway Patrolman, State Trooper, from the Nebraska record. Bruce did an introduction before he performed a song. Let's take a listen to that intro.
5: Johnny, I want to send out a big thanks for the inspiration. You you kind of took the uh, social consciousness from folk music and the, the gravity and humor from country music and the rebellion out of the rock and roll and, uh, and taught all us young guys that not only was it alright to to tear up all those lines and boundaries but it was important and uh, this was a song I loved from the early recordings for a long time would hope you like it
1: and then Bruce covers it in a way ultimately just him and a guitar that would bring Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash together to do just the same take a listen
5: found him by the railroad tracks this morning I could see that he was nearly dead I knelt down beside him and I listened To the words dying dying fell said. He said they let me out of prison being free school Ten long years I paid for what i done I was trying to get back on losing Just to see my rose and get to my son Give my love to Rose, won't you mister? Hey, give her this money Tell her to buy some pretty clothes Tell my boys, daddy is proud of him. Don't forget to give my love to Rose. Tell my boy
1: my daddy is proud of him. Something I think Johnny always wanted to hear from his own dad. Bring my love to Rose, one of my favorites, Bruce's favorite. And then a little bit later, Dave Matthews comes out with Emmy Lou Harris and take a listen.
5: Well, I spoke not a word, though it bound my
3: life for but... a
1: And as Bruce had said, that's what Johnny did. He broke down walls. And think about the artists who loved him and admired him that night. Everybody from Bruce Springsteen to Bono, an Irish rocker, an American rocker, Snoop Dogg, Trent Reznor, all of them openly admired this openly evangelical Southern man. And all because Johnny dared to smash stereotypes. Transcend musical categories And share himself With the world For better Or for worse And I gotta say Especially for worse And when we come back You're hearing Johnny sing The Trent Reznor song Hurt We're gonna talk about this unique Relationship between Cash And his producer Rick Rubin And it is special And you've never heard this before This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.
0: The needle tears the hole. The
1: life of Johnny Cash, who died on this day in history in
0: 2003. Try to kill it all away, but I remember everything. What have I become? Delia, oh, Delia, Delia all my life. If I hadn't shot poor Delia, I'd have had her for my wife. Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone.
1: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And that MTV video and that American recording song, Delia's Gone, Put Johnny Cash back on the map. He bumped into a guy named Rick Rubin who was a producer of the Beastie Boys and some heavy metal bands. But, well, he was drawn to this, this guy. Just drawn to him. And we're lucky enough, Jesse did some digging and found an interview between Rick Rubin and Johnny Cash. And what had happened to Cash was he'd sort of become a well, let's sort of just say a cover act of himself. And he had lost touch and contact with that original artist, those original feelings back in that Sun studio. And between the drugs and some bad decision-making, I think he had lost himself as an artist. And it took this young Buddhist, because Rick Rubin was a Buddhist and is, to get him in touch with his, actually, I think his faith, his songwriting, the guitar and that microphone and nothing else. Let's take a listen. From the documentary on the production of the American Recordings of Johnny Cash, we hear this master producer, Rick Rubin, talking about how he realized that he wanted to work with his country legend.
7: Most of the artists that I had worked with at that time were all new bands and young artists, and I was thinking it'd be really fun to work with a substantial grown-up artist. And I started thinking about all of the great legendary artists and who may have been in a, in a place that Maybe he either wasn't doing his best work or wasn't in a good situation. And Johnny was the first one to came, in, came into my mind of really legendary status, important, uh, timeless artist.
1: Well, here's Johnny talking about his first
7: recollection
1: of meeting Rick Rubin backstage at one of his concerts and how they eventually started talking about recording together.
0: Rick Rubin called my manager, Lou Robin and said he would like to talk to him about recording me and Luz invited him to come to a concert so he came to a concert a few miles south of Los Angeles and I met him backstage and we didn't really talk about me recording with him then we talked about the record business and what I had been doing and what I hadn't been doing mainly but he said I'd like to talk to you again you know it was getting late so he came to another concert and we sat back backstage and talked and he said I'd like to record you on American and I said what would you do with me that that uh, everybody else has tried to do you know and couldn't and he said well what would you like to do he said that's what I'll do and I you know I said well I would like to just take my guitar and sit down in front of a microphone and and sing until I found the songs that I wanted to record and then record them the way that, that I feel like they should be done. And, and he said, well, that's what I want. He said, I want to get the best out of you. Whatever you want to do, that's what I want to get on record.
1: How about that? What an idea. It can be that simple Time sometimes, folks. It can be that simple. Here, Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin talk about how they started recording in Rick's living room. What a smart move. Get out of that studio.
7: The first thing that we did in working together was kind of reframe the record-making experience from making just another album to, we're not done until this is the best album you've ever made in your life, and whatever that takes is what we're going to do. And um, it was, it's like, this is your first album.
0: sounded like a dream come true for me because I had always wanted to uh, record this way. I'd always wanted to, I have 25 years ago, I had a conversation with Marty Robbins. I said, I always wanted to record an album called Johnny Cash, Late and Alone. And uh, I told Ruben this, this is what I really would like to do. And uh, he said, let's do it. So we sat down and we, we made a deal. And I sat down in front of a microphone in his living room and went through my list of 200 or more songs and started singing them one after another. And we recorded them as I went along.
1: In this clip, Rick Rubin talks about how he wanted to show the real Johnny Cash. Johnny says it gave him a new enthusiasm. Enthusiasm he never thought he would ever get to experience again.
7: I was really interested in getting to the heart of who he was and really exposing that and and showing the world who he really was.
0: Like about 18 and It's given me an opportunity to uh, express myself artistically I that I never had before. I wrote a letter to my I've dug out every old, old, old song that I ever wanted to sing, and and I've sung them. The Tennessee stud was long and lean The color of the sun and his eyes were green It's given me an enthusiasm and a new... Uh, look at what, I, what my possibilities and capabilities are that I never thought I would get to experience.
1: Well, imagine that. A young man inspiring an older guy to get in touch with his original self. And maybe a self he never knew. Well, Cash says the reaction he got after a concert he did in the Viper Room in Los Angeles because ultimately Cash had to test these songs out. And the Viper Room is a really famous small room in L.A. And Johnny gets up there with just the guitar and he starts singing these songs alone and he doesn't know what's going to happen. He has no idea what the reaction will be. He's probably scared out of his wits, which is good. And, well, he plays the and audience. the audience went crazy. They wanted more because they were hearing this colossal talent. Really, almost for the first time, it sounded like. Here's Cash talking about the reaction he got in that room that night.
0: Well, the reaction was like the 50s all over again. It was like that kind of excitement. The 50s, you know, like I had, was, I had freedom of choice in the studio. I did an album the way I wanted to, exactly the way I wanted to. the way It felt good to me. Well it felt good to my producer and the reaction from the critics and the fans was beautiful. To be free.
1: Well let's take a listen, take a listen to a couple of the cuts. Of course the first, the most historic, his cover of nine inch nails isn't in Trent Reznor's Hurt.
0: The old familiar stain, try to kill it all away.
1: And the lyrics just jump out at you. I hurt myself today to see if I just feel. I focus on the pain, the only thing that's real. Only an addict could have sung that song about addiction. Heroin, the drug of choice for Trent Reznor. Johnny Cash never did that, but it didn't matter. Here's Jesse's favorite God's gonna cut you down.
0: You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time. Sooner or later, gotta cut you down. And our leader gotta cut you down. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell him that God's gonna cut 'em down. Tell him that God's gonna cut him down. And
1: circling all the way back to that original theme, I wanted to read something that Steven Turner closed out his book with, and then play the song. And here's how that book ended, A Man Called Cash. The realm that Johnny Cash lived in was clouded by pain and colored by grace. He had the ability to transform the rough and commonplace into objects fit for heaven, just as he had been transformed. Rick Rubin remembers him taking Ewan McCall's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face and turning it from a love song into a devotional song. Quote, he loved that, said Rick Rubin. It came really natural to him. It seemed like his devotion for life came from his devotion for God. Again, an atheist talking about a Christian. This was not in the movie. Shame on the movie. Take a listen to Johnny.
0: The first time. Ever I saw your face? I thought the sun rose
1: in your eyes. This is Lee Habib, the life of Johnny Cash, who died on this day in history in two thousand three. And the
0: moon and the stars Were the gifts you gave To the dark And the endless sky My love And the first time ever I kissed your mouth.
1: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites, and we love to tell stories about business, and we love to tell stories about entrepreneurs and how they change the world, change the nation, and in the end, drive our economy. Heinz food products have been a part of American culture for more than a century. Though Heinz ketchup is one of the most recognized corporate symbols in the world, few people know anything at all about its creator, H.J. Heinz. His hard work, innovation, and obsessive kindness proved one of his favorite sayings Quote, To do a common thing uncommonly well brings success. Here's Greg Hengler with the story of H.J. Hines.
5: Their ketchup's coming out a lot slower than
8: ours does. That's not good manners. Oh, you notice our Hines. Here, taste it. Anticipation.
5: Anticipation is making me wait. That's ketchup I ever tasted. That's
0: pouring it on a little thick. Yeah! Rich Heinz ketchup, the taste that's worth the wait.
8: The Heinz family saga begins with the determination of immigrants to make a better life for themselves. Beginning in the 1680s, many German immigrants took the long voyage across the Atlantic Ocean to Pennsylvania. In 1843, John and Anna Heinz, both recent arrivals from Germany, Settle outside Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. John becomes a brickmaker. The next year, they have their first child, a boy they name Henry John, or H.J. The Heinz family will grow to include nine children, four boys and five girls. One of their daughters, however, dies when she is only a baby. Like many German immigrants, Mr. and Mrs. Hines believe the importance of hard work. Every day, H.J. will pick up vegetables in the family garden before walking over a mile each way to his Lutheran school and back, a school run by his church. Upon his arrival back, he will continue working in the plot until sunset. Henry's love of gardening is evident in the very first photo where his knuckles are visibly swollen from the hard work. Here's the president of the Heinz History Center, Andy Masick, and Heinz biographer, Horse Quentin Skrebeck.
9: Like many of the other German immigrant boys here in uh, Pittsburgh, he spoke with a, a German accent, uh, though he went to American uh, schools, and he felt very much American. Horse it was typical radish. for German families
10: Horse to work radish. as an economic union. The, the children would do work like that, but most of them didn't take it up as a career, long term. He he was very creative and saw, gee, I can make
9: money here. I I can make a living here. I can make a business out of this.
3: Horseradish.
9: Henry Hines was just 15 years old when he started his business in downtown Pittsburgh.
0: I'll take one jar. Yes, sir.
9: He started by canning horseradish that his mother grew in her garden and sold it on the streets of Pittsburgh, pushing a handcart, a wheelbarrow around. And people loved the product, and he thought, well, let's try some other things.
8: Two years later, his little business has grown so much that he now needs a horse to pull his cart.
9: Hello. Hello, Mom. He was very influenced by his mother. She knew how to play on his feelings and to encourage him Uh, when he was down. And he learned some of those people skills from his mother.
8: Anna Hines is a disciplined and devout Christian mother, training and instructing her children with Bible lessons, stressing the importance of serving others, and counting them as more significant than themselves.
9: His mother was very religious. Uh, She converted to Lutheranism, and she sent uh, young Henry to the Lutheran seminary nearby, thinking that maybe one day he would be a minister.
8: She thinks this until she sees his love of the family garden. Here's former advertising executive at Heinz, Edwin Luhu.
11: She made the children work from sunrise to sunset in this garden. And H.J. was the only one who favored it. In fact, he stayed out there long after the hours were over.
8: H.J.'s talent and passion are plain to see. So, when he turns 12, his mother proudly presents her firstborn with three acres of land for his birthday. The young entrepreneur quickly develops and markets a growing line of produce and homemade condiments. And shortly after, his little farm triples in size. At 15, H.J. quits school in order to focus entirely on his business, waking at 3 a.m. so he can take his vegetables to stores in Pittsburgh, only to return home and work for his father making bricks. Here's Harvard Business School professor Nancy Cohen.
6: And is a very successful junior entrepreneur selling cabbage and cucumbers and zucchini and tomatoes off his wagon to neighbors and has a growing list of customers. And from the very beginning, from his earliest days of peddling horseradish door-to-door, or from a wagon with his own horse, he wanted to make sure his customers got only pure food.
8: H.J. is obsessed with purity. As a Christian, he associates purity with goodness. Fresh food is healthy food. This is in an age when Americans are suspicious of factory-made food, and with good reason. It is often packaged in filthy conditions and contains a stomach-turning array of cheap fillers like leaves or wood pulp and chemical preservatives. While his competitors use golden brown bottles to hide add-ins and imperfections, H.J. makes a point of selling his mother's horseradish recipe in clear glass jars. H.J. wants his customers to believe that the food he delivers is worth every penny they spend on it. Thanks to his mother's recipes and beliefs, people grow to trust the Heinz name.
1: And what a story this is, and we will continue with the story of H.J. Heinz. And my goodness, it sounds like so many of the other entrepreneurial stories we did, no matter what the ethnicity, no matter where these people came from, these innovators. My goodness, the story, well, it sounds the same. Service to customers. More on the H.J. Heinz story here on Our American Stories.
8: For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.
1: And we continue with our American stories and the story of H.J. Hines. And he started as a boy canning his mom's horseradish, selling other products from his garden from a hand cart. Soon, he wasn't pushing that cart. It was being pulled by a horse. And he was growing his business and, again, dropping out of school and just getting to work.
8: We continue now with the story of H.J. Hines. Thanks to his mother's recipes and beliefs, people grow to trust the Heinz name. Here again is the president of the Heinz History Center, Andy Masek.
9: Henry was always a meticulous man. Uh, he was a hard worker, and he kept detailed notes. Uh, he kept uh, journals and record books. And so he was not only mathematical... Uh, but he had a, a human side to him. He was kind of left and right-brained both. So he could figure out the formulas for things uh, and keep good records, but he was also a people person.
8: In 1861, 17-year-old Henry sells $2,400 worth of produce, about $68,000 in today's money, And by 1866, Henry becomes a partner in his father's brick company and quickly makes changes. At the time, most brickyards shut down for the winter. Henry decides to heat the small factory so it can stay open through the cold months. That way, the company will have a supply of bricks ready when the demand for bricks rises in the spring. In 1869, at 25 years of age, H.J. meets Sarah Young at his church. A daughter of Irish immigrants who will bring his new household what his mother has to the old. Religious devotion and a stable emotional foundation. On a train to New York, they meet another couple planning to marry. H.J. spotting an opportunity to save money suggests that both couples share a minister and marry the same day. 1869 was also the year H.J. and his neighborhood friend Clarence Noble start a company designed to sell horseradish, pickles, and sauerkraut across the eastern seaboard. As H.J.'s company grows, so does his family. A daughter named Irene in 1871, and two years later, a boy named Clarence. H.J. and Sarah will have five children.
9: One of the things he learned early on was that uh, people weren't sure about canned products or things in jars. Sometimes people got sick eating the products of other people. So Henry found that he didn't put his labels on the jar at first. He He'd put somebody else's label on the jar. And if nobody got sick and if people liked it, then he would put his label on the next batch.
8: The Heinz and Noble Company is profitable until 1875, when mistakes by Noble and the Panic of 1873 suddenly threaten its existence. H.J. turns to his father and a friendly banker who loan him money. Even his wife pitches in. But by the year's end, the company is bankrupt. Here's Heinz's biographer... Eleanor Diensteig and Nancy Cullen.
10: The diaries read like a Dickensian novel. They're heart-rending. He has boils, his wife takes to bed. He's too depressed to go to church, which was unthinkable for him. His brother started to take to drink. The whole family was collapsing.
6: Several creditors accuse him of basically falsifying his records and demand that he be arrested. He is arrested, held in jail for a day, and comes back the next day to face what is uh, an ever-mounting load of debts and unpaid bills.
8: It's Christmas. The Heinz can't even afford to buy a single present for their children. Here again is Heinz biographer Quentin Scrabeck.
10: He probably went through one phase of real depression. I mean, there were was, was several months where he was pretty much immobilized in bed.
8: H.J. believes his friends are shunning him. He writes mournfully, I have no money, so I have no friends. His parents mortgage their house to raise funds, only to see it repossessed. Creditors come and sell off his mother's furniture. Awash in shame, H.J. can only watch helplessly as the crisis consumes his aging father. Here's Heinz family archivist, Frank Kurtick.
9: Henry J. Heinz's father had raised a family, established a home in America, as an immigrant, and he sees so much of his life wiped out before his eyes.
8: The elder Hines will never recover, spending his final years in and out of sanitariums, a broken man. Through this and other dark moments in his life, H.J. is anchored by his twin beliefs, belief in God and God's unshakable plan for his life. Just two months after the bankruptcy, on New Year's Day, 1876, H.J. picks himself up and asks the only people to have stayed by his side, his family, to help him start a new business. Together, they form the Heinz Food Company. The whole family pitches in, and his mother and sisters begin bottling horseradish in the basement of their home. Starting a brand new company on a slim budget, H.J. has to travel by foot to the vegetable fields. To have a horse again, he buys himself a bargain. A blind horse.
10: He owed a lot of people in Pittsburgh money a lot of grocers and so forth, he made a pledge that he would pay them back, even though legally he didn't have to, and that was one of the, 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 the key things in his life as well. He spent four or five years repaying back grocers, farmers, and suppliers.
8: Through his leadership, H.J. guides the Heinz Food Company to immediate success, taking special pleasure in culinary innovations.
6: He's experimenting like a woman in the kitchen, making it up as he goes along, and his notebooks are chock-a-block full of, of, of fascinating recipes. Everything from peanut butter, which he does
8: not pursue,
6: to baked beans, which he does very successfully, to chutneys. In
8: 1876, he creates the condiment that future generations will associate with his name. Here again is Edwin Luhu. When he was
11: in England, he noticed that they had a product called ketchup, which was made of fish and different ingredients and different spices. It was a very spicy condiment. And he liked it, and he thought, I wonder if we substituted tomatoes for the fish, what that would taste
8: like. This is how we get the word ketchup. It comes from the Chinese word ketchup which is a kind of fish sauce. Mm. Here again is Annie Mason.
9: Yes, it is good. Ketchup was probably invented in China a thousand years ago, but H.J. Heinz brought it to a new level.
8: There are several types of ketchup in the 19th century, but none of them sell particularly well. Apart from Heinz, no one sees potential in the red vegetable sauce. Pittsburgh is home of the steel industry, but it's also center for glass making. Unlike his competitors, Heinz believes that his customers should be able to see the bright red ketchup. This, however, has a drawback.
9: You know when you look in a ketchup bottle, sometimes it gets kind of dark and rubbery, uh, kind of uh, oxidized near the top. Well, he knew that people would be put off by seeing that, so he put a paper label near the neck of the bottle so the product looked uh, red and beautiful.
8: Heinz builds a new factory which still stands today as an industrial monument in Pittsburgh. The factory is one of the first in the country run on electricity and Heinz will be the first to put up an electric billboard in New York City. The Pittsburgh headquarters site offers easy access to the Allegheny River and railroad lines. The whole neighborhood smells of vinegar, then as now, the main preservative. As indispensable as H.J. is to the company, he's just as valuable to his church. He is especially dedicated to teaching the children about the Bible and their Christian faith at Sunday school. In fact, H.J. will travel all over the world in order to promote the idea of Sunday school. H.J. is also known for his generosity. He will build a boarding home for homeless children, the poor will count on him for a meal, And he will often loan money to his customers so they can stay in business. Heinz places his factory in the midst of Andrew Carnegie's steel factory and rival steel makers. But Heinz's revenues will one day surpass those of his larger neighbors.
9: H.J. Heinz was an intuitive marketer. He had a sense of how to sell things. And although he didn't invent ketchup, he marketed it better than anyone in the world.
1: And when we come back, more on the life of H.J. Hines and, my goodness, his story. Well, again, it sounds like so many of our entrepreneur and innovator stories. It's never a clean path, and yet somehow they get back up and do it again. Bankruptcy and so much worse, Hines and the Hines family faced. When we come back, more of this great American story, this great Pittsburgh story, here on Our American Story.
6: Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
1: we continue here with our american stories and the life of h.j heinz let's pick up where we last left off
8: ketchup quickly becomes the linchpin of h.j's growing business by the mid-1880s with the expansion of the railroad the heinz company is selling dozens of products in all corners of the united states on every railroad car, his company uses The Heinz name is proudly displayed on its side. In Pittsburgh, people see teams of horses pulling wagons carrying Heinz products, and the company name is always printed on each wagon. Grocery stores boast in their ads that they carry the popular Heinz brand.
9: H.J. Hines believed that if people tasted his product, they would certainly buy it. And he had an elaborate system uh, for his sales staff to take out to stores and and grocery stores um, little packages of samples. He had cardboard spoons that people could taste and then throw away. Uh, He had chafing dishes and different pots that people could sample things in the store. And when they tried it, they liked it and they bought
8: it. But with success comes competition. Heinz's competitors copy his ideas and methods. Heinz has to fight to survive, and not always by the fairest means.
9: When he wanted to run other people out of business, he bought up all the glass bottles in town and used all that he could. And those that he couldn't use, he put on a barge sank the barge in the Allegheny River so nobody else could use them.
8: Heinz's dealings with the staff at the factory are colored by a completely different climate. Here again is Nancy Cohen.
6: Henry Hines looks at the railroad strikes of 1872 when over a thousand railroad cars were destroyed in a mob rioting and the National Guard was called in and 29 people were killed and decides this is not going to be my future. This reinforces his determination to create a different kind of organization where his labor is content, where his labor is motivated, where his labor is industrious.
8: In an age when horses are often treated better than the workers, Henry Heinz embraces his employees as family. In the Heinz factory, there's a restaurant and rooftop gardens, free carriage rides, an indoor swimming pool and gymnasium free doctors and dentists at a time when many people did not have indoor plumbing employees can shower and bathe in the factory h.j promotes women managers to supervise his predominantly female workforce and he creates some of the best incentive pay for women in the nation h.j takes poor immigrant wives and daughters teaches them english and homemaking skills And prepares them for their citizenship tests. These women receive freshly laundered aprons and bonnets daily and there's even a daily manicure for food handlers. H.J. believes that the hands that work with the food should be as germ-free as possible. At the end of the day this all adds to the products quality and shelf life. H.J. knows that happy well cared for employees will stay on the job, work hard, and not be interested in causing trouble. And he delights in saying, heart power is stronger than horsepower. Here again is Edwin Luhu.
11: People that came to work and they were down and trod, and he went over to them, put his hand around them and said, well, better days are ahead. This is what we should do. This is how you can cope with your problem. Let me help you out. And he did this with the employees of the company and they idolized him. He became a father to practically every employee in the company.
8: H.J. will travel throughout the country meeting with customers and giving pep talks to his sales force. His enthusiasm and confidence is contagious. The passion he has for selling vegetables as a young boy never leaves him. H.J.'s policies create a productive workforce and anchor his company's unique public image. Here's Henry Ford Museum curator Judith Endelman.
12: He was really one of the founders of what today we call public relations through his use of branding and a clear identity for his company, corporate giveaways, and keeping his company in the public eye in so many different ways.
8: Henry is the first to initiate the factory tour, inviting the general public to view the immaculate conditions under which Heinz products are packaged. By 1900, 20,000 guests a year are passing through his factory gates. In 1886, 40-year-old Henry Hines takes his family on a vacation to Europe to visit his parents' homeland of Germany. The first stop is England, where he immediately visits the graves of his Christian heroes, John Bunyan, Isaac Watts, and John Wesley. Hines writes, I felt I was upon holy ground. For his trip, H.J. has brought samples of some of his best products, like his ketchup and horseradish. With a suitcase of Heinz products, he journeys to London and calls on Fortnum & Mason, purveyor of fine food to the royal family. Here again is Edwin Luhu and Eleanor Deenshtag. He stroked his whiskers,
11: put on his top hat, and he bursted right into the front door. He was an awesome salesman.
10: He went in and showed his products and talked about them and had him sample the products. They said, I believe we will take them all. Everybody was shocked, including H.J. Hines.
8: At this time, nobody in Europe buys food from America. It's H.J.'s first step towards running a global company. Hines has always been part of the progressive wing of the Republican Party, which supports the expansion of American business into Asia. The American administration saw China and Japan as the key to the Orient. Heinz saw things differently. They were the keys to the Orient in both business and the acceptance of Sunday school. Because of Heinz's missionary passion, planning, and financial backing, Sunday schools prosper all over Asia. Heinz has taken the small business he started with his family 11 years earlier and turned it into a food-producing giant. Here again is Andy Masick.
9: Heinz believed in pure foods. He built his brand on the fact that his product was better than anyone else's. He always said, the secret to success is to do a common thing uncommonly well.
8: H.J. discovers ideas in unlikely places. And a chance encounter in 1892 inspires a world-famous advertising slogan.
9: You've seen that, 57 on his products. Well, the story behind that is, he was going to New York City on a business trip, and he was on an elevated train, and as he looked out the window, he saw a billboard that said 23 Styles of Shoes. And he thought, 23 styles of shoes, that's pretty impressive, I wonder how many products I have. And he started counting them up in his head, they were 54, 55, 56, 57, 57. That, that's an interesting looking number, he liked the look of it. When he got home, he found out he really had many more products than 57, but he liked the number so much that he decided to put it on all of his labels, he put it in whitewashed stone on hillsides on billboards every place he branded his company with Heinz 57
8: 57 is one of the greatest marketing ideas of all time it promises diversity while remaining manageable and so Heinz 57 has entered the American lexicon
1: and when we come back more of the life of H.J. Heinz and my goodness, you're learning so much about not just the product, not just about the man, uh, but about his faith and how it intertwines with, and is an inescapable part of every part of this great business. I mean, the idea of making the best product, the purest product, it just comes straight from who he is. And yet this same guy can sort of make up the number 57 because he just likes the look of it and just drives it home And nobody knew branding better than H.J. Hines. When we come back, the rest of his life story here on Our American Story.
9: For more go to ouramericanetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
1: We continue with the life story of H. J. Hines here on our American stories, and now the very last part of this terrific story.
9: He developed kind of a distinctive style of his own. He had uh, very uh, distinctive whiskers, uh, white whiskers, and kind of his hair uh, brushed back. Uh, he was uh, uh, he was kind of a character. He had a sense of himself,
8: but above all, Hines is clever.
9: In 1893, H.J. Hines went to the Columbian Exposition, that's the World's Fair in Chicago, and they gave him a booth or a place to show his wares on the third floor of the exhibit hall. Well. Nobody at the World's Fair was climbing three sets of stairs to go up to the third floor. So Heinz came up with an idea. On the spur of the moment, he printed little gold luggage tags. They had kind of a gold foil on it. And he printed on the back of the tag, bring to the Heinz booth on the third floor for a free prize. And people would be strolling along arm in arm, and they would catch the glint of gold out of the corner of their eyes, and they'd pick it up, and they'd say, oh, look, we could bring it to the for a free prize, and so they trooped up the steps by the hundreds, by the thousands. By the hundreds of thousands, people were going up to the third floor, and they found the Heinz booth, and they saw his pyramids of ketchup and pickles, and it was the hit of the fair.
8: After 20 years in business, the H.J. Heinz Company is the largest food processing company in the United States, with a workforce of 23,000 people. His mansion occupies one corner of a grand street in the east end of Pittsburgh. His immediate neighbors are named Westinghouse, Carnegie, and Mellon. In 1894, Sarah Hines dies of typhoid on Thanksgiving Day at the age of 74. Henry writes, The darkest day we ever knew. Hines will never marry again. Typhoid! is the number one killer in the Pittsburgh area due to the dirty water. HJ will promote, finance, and lead a commission on smoke abatement, sewage control, and water filtration plants that will eliminate the 100-year plague of typhoid fever. By 1904, HJ is selling its products on all six inhabited continents. Decades before Coca-Cola or McDonald's become symbols of the international economy, Heinz products are found in all corners of the world. The American son of German immigrants has made himself world famous. He has changed eating habits, convincing customers that eating food made in an unknown factory thousands of miles distant can be as good, if not better, than homemade. Here again is Quinton Scrabeck.
10: His main competition for most of his life was not other competitors as much as the housewife in preserved foods. He was competing against the home preserving group. In
8: 1906, the 62-year-old Henry Hines will willingly risk everything he has achieved to defend a point of principle. Suddenly, the entire food business comes under attack when Upton Sinclair's novel, The Jungle, exposes horrendous conditions in Chicago meatpacking plants. An outraged public demands federal regulation, but all of the food processing companies oppose the controls, all except one. When Heinz supports the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, he's branded a traitor. Competitors boycott his products and threaten his life. H.J. is courageous and stands firm, as he's fond of saying quality is to a product what character is to a man. His competitors realize that if they are forced to meet the standards he has always lived by, they will go out of business.
10: While a great deal of American food processing industry like ketchup manufacturers are opposing this legislation. Here's Heinz supporting this legislation. Well, you can imagine, he quickly got the support of uh, magazines like good housekeeping and, and so forth, and consumers. Here's an industrialist you know out there supporting legislation like this. So it, it was good commercial advertising and marketing form.
8: H.J. arouses further wrath when he personally lobbies President Theodore Roosevelt. Hines even convinces Roosevelt that without food quality oversight, even his beloved scotch might not be pure. With Roosevelt's support, the landmark Pure Food and Drug Act became the law that protects consumers from toxic additives and fraud. Roosevelt declares,
7: A man should be able to drink a whiskey in the evening without jeopardizing his health.
8: To the very end of his days, H.J. lives a very vigorous lifestyle. He considers himself a simple working man and never loses his common touch, still rolling up his sleeves and joining the workers in the fields. Heinz is a colorful character. On his 71st birthday, he is asked how he feels, and he doesn't say anything. He just jumps over a chair. <laughs> In 1918, following the end of World War I, H.J. is 74 years old and still goes to the factory every day, and on Sundays involves himself in his church. In May 1919, H.J. has what appears to be a simple cold, but it is soon apparent that it's pneumonia. The founder of the Henry John Hines Food Company dies peacefully in his home at the age of 74 tributes pour in from all around the world, but none would have meant more to him than the grief of his corporate family. Here again is Edwin Luhu.
11: They all became so close to him. When he passed away, they were in tears. They rang bells in the company, and it was a day of mourning.
8: The Heinz employees feel as though they've lost a father, and they pool their resources to commission a sculpture of the beloved founder. In his will, Henry writes... I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will, as the most important item in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. He then requests that a church be built in memory of his mother. It now stands on the university campus in Pittsburgh. Over the years, the Heinz Company will continue to innovate. In 1968, It is the first company to offer ketchup in small-to-go packets. In 1983, Heinz introduces the first squeezable plastic bottle for ketchup. Ketchup is in 90% of all American homes, and Heinz has double the ketchup market share of its nearest competitor. Today, the company employs more than 33,000 people and sells more than 650 million bottles of ketchup every year in pittsburgh the company's legacy is present everywhere heinz field is home of the pittsburgh steelers heinz hall is dedicated to the performing arts and the heinz endowments foundation is the city's most important sponsor here again is andy masick and h.j's great great grandson andre heinz he
9: was one of the first people to really understand global marketing He was also someone who understood branding, uh, how important a name was and how important consumer confidence was in
7: building a business. And of course, the Heinz company, as it was during his lifetime, I think was a manifestation of his worldview, which is you, again, you do right by other people, um, and that uh, there's no room for uh, being sloppy or for selling out. I like that. (laughs)
8: I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And
1: what a story indeed. One man builds a global brand, but in the end, what he really did was impact his neighborhood, the city of Pittsburgh. Drive around it, walk around it. Heinz Field, Heinz Hall, Heinz Endowment, still to this day, this man's work, this man's faith still being felt in the great city of Pittsburgh. Henry Hines' story here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for a segment we call The Why Minutes, and here's Lindsay Marie.
12: Have you ever seen the Domino's pizza logo on a pothole before? <laughs> if you have, the good news is, you're not just seeing things. And, if you haven't, you actually might in the near future, but why is that? It's actually one part angry customers and two parts potholes. You see, Domino's kept getting calls from angry customers. They had been in the store and bought a hot pizza, only to hit a pothole and have their toppings slide completely off. And, <laughs> if there anything like the potholes where I live? I can only imagine what the inside of those cars looked like. Domino's launched a program called Paving for Pizza, which would pay for road repairs. People could nominate their town, and Domino's would get to paving, but way more importantly, pizza savin. And yeah, Domino's wasn't in the business of roads, and they definitely aren't now. But there are incentives for them to fix them. Better roads means less time and money spent remaking ruined pizzas, and happier customers equal more business. Now, I'm definitely not saying that Domino's is the answer to all our road problems, or that we should replace the department of transportation with pizza companies. I'm just saying that maybe we shouldn't accept the age-old myth that only government can, or maybe more importantly, will, build the roads and deliver public goods. The Why Minutes, because why matters.
1: And to hear all of our Why Minutes, go to whyminutes.com. That's whyminutes.com. This is Our American Stories.
8: For more go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast